The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Make sure you're in fellowship filled with the Spirit, ready to study His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in the light of your word that we see light, and it is only through your word that we are able to understand the, and correctly interpret the details and facts and situations around us. Father, we pray now that as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to clearly understand what is here that we would also have the courage and objectivity to, to take what we learn and to apply it to our own lives. Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation, that we can freely gather and freely study your word. We pray that you would continue to protect and preserve those freedoms, that you would give our leaders, both uh, political and military, the wisdom, the skill that they need in order to uh, protect us, in order to execute this war against uh, terrorism and as well as uh, the possible war against Iraq. Now, Father, now as we commit our time to study your word, we pray that you would help us to see how these things apply, that we might think more precisely, more critically about the things that go on around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I know for the last two weeks I have threatened to end our study on 1 John. In fact, last time I said we were done. Well, I, I didn't lie, but... I'm mistaken. At the time, I thought we were done, but in the last week, I had occasion to chat a little bit with some different folks in the congregation about the things that we talked about last uh, Sunday morning, and I decided that I needed to go back over that just a bit, and it was uh, important for me to add some things that, uh, for lack of time, we did not have time to cover. If you remember last time, and for those of you who were not here last time, we were looking at the last two verses of 1 John 5, where there is an emphasis on the part of John to emphasize the truth 
of Christianity over against all false systems of thinking. And, in fact, he concludes in verse 21 with the statement, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. As part of an application approach to that passage last time, and because of um, just general things that are going on around here, I thought it would be a good opportunity to take a, uh, a particular uh, example of how religion is taught under the guise of uh, secular education as a way to model for you and as parents, for you as individuals, and for our prep school teachers an approach to teaching critical thinking skills. And we had one example that I used last time from uh, that was handed out in one of the local uh, fifth grade classes that was you, you, teaching in a somewhat anesthetized version, a, uh, u- utilizing a creative visualization technique. And I went back and I did some study on uh, creative visualization and uh, showed you what was actually going on there and how it has its roots in in Hinduism, has its roots in Eastern mysticism, and how this is being things of that type are being taught under the guise of uh, uh, stress management techniques to kids in school. One reason that that is happening is because there are so few parents today that are exercising or teaching any level of discipline in the home that school teachers in public school systems are um, having to teach basic uh, manners and basic uh, uh, discipline to kids. They, they spend more of their time teaching kids just how to control themselves than they do any particular kind of content, and that's the fault of the parents. Furthermore, we have a breakdown in our judicial system, and they don't allow teachers to really discipline kids anymore. You can't uh, threaten the kids with any number of things that um, many of us who have a little gray hair were threatened with when we were kids. And uh, I know that if I had ever gotten in trouble at school, that um, the teacher was always right, the principal was always right, and um, I would get ten times the punishment at home that I got at school. So uh, that does not, that's the way it should be. Parents should always back the teacher because the teacher is the one in authority in the classroom. And unless you have evidence to the contrary that they're just incompetent or incapable, uh, the parents should never cause uh, this, the, their children to ever think that somehow, some way, the teacher has uh, uh, just really doesn't know what they're doing or somehow the teacher has it in for that kid or whatever. You know, nearly every kid, I was a school teacher for... Uh, Two years, I didn't have an actual classroom job. I was I ran an in-school suspension class. What that means is they took every. It was a small school district. They took every kid from the elementary, junior high, and high school, and instead of suspending them and sending them home, they suspended them and sent them to me. And I was young and intimidating, and I just loved raising hell with those kids all day long. And I made them just hate the very fact that they were breathing so that they would never want to come see Mr. Dean again. But, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen a lot anymore. And, and uh, teachers resort to these kinds of things. That's part of the pressure. The other part of the pressure is just what's happening in our culture. And that is we live in a world that has uh, been, uh, and in a country, in a culture that has been 
influenced more and more by paganism, by Eastern religions and Eastern uh, mysticism over the last 20 or 30 years. The so-called Christian consensus, according to most historians, evaporated about 1963. That seems to be the benchmark date of when many things uh really shifted in this nation not that things weren't dying out already it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, rapid change it wasn't one way in 1962 and a different way in 1963 it's that the gradual uh deterioration of uh the influence of christianity came to a clear end about 1963 and since then our all of the systems in this nation have been um uh, controlled more and more with human viewpoint thinking and pagan thinking, which puts the believer in an interesting situation because we hold to a completely different set of values and a set of think- and a way of thinking that is no longer the cultural norm in the United States as opposed to the way things were 150 years ago or even 250 years ago. And, uh, and in some ways you can even go back to the early part of the 20th century, but the erosion was already clear and, and had come over the horizon by the turn of the 20th century. So now we live in a, in a, in a world and in a culture where whether you're talking about a work environment, an employer, employee environment, whether you're talking about an education environment, whether you're talking about the military, government, whatever system, you find yourself in today as a believer, you're in a system that is going to be controlled and dominated by human viewpoint thinking and paganism to one degree or another because the residual impact of Judeo-Christian thinking has pretty much evaporated. So how do you handle that? How do you handle that when you're trying to raise your children to think biblically? How do we as a church handle that when we're trying to uh, inculcate doctrine into our children in the prep school to give them critical thinking skills so that they're able to exercise some discernment when they're not only at school but but in any other arena. It could be extracurricular activities. It can be watching television, watching movies, whatever it may be, to give them the, the kind of tools they need to be able to interact and to think about what is influencing them. Uh, the purpose of that exercise last time and the purpose for the exercise uh, that we have in, in the prep school when teachers engage in interacting with what might be taught in, in, in public school classroom is not to send everybody out on some crusade against the public schools. That's not the purpose. Uh, we always have to remember that uh, every agency and organization in a fallen world is going to be run according to the principles of the cosmic system. And you may be able to have some impact at some level as an individual or working with other groups, uh, and I'll address that a little later on. But I just want to make sure and give a strong caveat, because after something like last time, if you are suddenly becoming aware of some of the real garbage that is being promoted in some curricula uh, across, across the country in public school, I don't want you going out on a war path and going down and... Uh, and just going about everything the wrong way. The goal of the instruction from last time and today is to help us to keep our thinking free from idolatry, to keep our own thinking free from idolatry, and to also to provide a, some, some helpful uh, ways to think about keeping our 
children's thinking free from idolatry. It is not, the purpose of this is definitely not to keep the cosmic system or its agencies free from idolatry. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to go out and to keep the uh, government or public schools or the military or any other organization out there uh, free from idolatry. Remember, the cosmic, all of these different groups, whether you're talking about the military, government, education, whatever it might be, they're all in the cosmic system. Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, and and when, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Luke 4, he offers him the kingdoms of the world. Why? Because the kingdoms, the governments of all the countries and nations in the world are under Satan's control. Just because we have had the privilege of living in a nation that has a history where many of our institutions and many of the leaders in the past had a strong, some were believers, some were strongly influenced by, by Christianity, and Christianity had a, had a determinative effect on many of our uh, economic and social and legal structures, does not mean that a nation's government is outside the cosmic system. So uh, that's just one part of it. We have to remember that it's not our place, and it's not certainly outside the purview of what I want to do in the pulpit to outline and, and uh, dissect all of the systems, all of the organizations, all of the flaky uh, problem-solving devices and stress management programs that you can be exposed to. I just want to give you a few examples here and there so that you can learn how to develop some 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 critical thinking skills in terms of applying doctrine to things that are, in many cases, uh, very subtle. As a general rule of thumb, whenever you're exposed to many things, uh, you have to start, have to ex- examine whatever it is in terms of its starting point. You get exposed to some sort of psychological system or motivational system or, or a management system. There's a number of different management systems that are being adopted in various corporations. You have to ask certain questions like what, at the core, what view of people and man does this whole system under, uh, rely upon? What is the underlying view of man? Is, is the underlying view of man here that, that people are basically good or that people are basically evil? Uh, what is the ultimate reality that lies behind this system? Uh, you always have to say, ask the question, what is the ultimate starting point? And when you get there, what is the view of reality that is, that it, that this ultimate starting point is based on? It, does it, do they start with the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is their starting point creation? Now last time, we went through the doctrine of the creator-creature distinction. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the creator. And the Bible presents him as being uh, completely distinct from the creation. So down here we have the creation. And in the creation we have all physical laws. We have all laws of... uh, of mathematics, we have all uh, laws of chemistry, we have ethics, we have uh, laws in the sense of civil laws, you have people, animals, created things. All of this is in the realm of creation. 
Now, your starting point on any system of thinking is either going to be up here with a God who is distinct from his creation, who speaks authoritatively to everything in creation, or your starting point is going to be inside this circle, one or the other. Whether you're talking about economics, whether you're talking about ethics, whether you're talking about uh, physical law, your starting point is either out here or it's inside this circle. And my basic point last time on idolatry is when you start here, you're taking some detail, some detail of the created order, and you are elevating that to a position that is in competition with God of the Bible as the creator of the universe who is distinct from everything else. At some point, you always take, or paganism and human viewpoint thinking, always take some detail. Maybe it's human thought and rationalism. Maybe it's empiricism. Maybe it's some form of, of logic. Maybe it's some physical law. But it's going to take some detail of the creation and elevate it to a point of supremacy. And that, in turn, is used to judge and evaluate the claims of the Bible and the claims of God. And that is essentially what idolatry is. And the pagan system, human viewpoint, the thinking of Satan, which is called in the Bible cosmic thinking from the Greek word cosmos, which has to do with an orderly, systematic uh, approach to thought, that cosmic thinking always operates on this principle. Now, you can have many different, many different views of cosmic thinking. You, everything from um, from a strict mechanistic atheism to a, an extremely mystical uh, Buddhism or Hinduism, and everything in between. But they all boil down to taking some element out of the created order elevating it to a point of uh, as, a, as a universal, as a supreme point, and then judging the Bible, judging the creator of the Bible by that principle or by that, by that uh, uh, detail extrapolated from creation. And that's what makes it idolatry and is part of the Christian life. In order to implement the principle of, of 1 John uh, 5.21, to keep ourselves from idols, we have to be aware of this. Now, remember... In the Old Testament, the word, the concept of idols usually had to do with some sort of physical representation of God. In the New Testament, the word idol is never applied to a physical, physical uh, representation of God. It usually has to do with, with something much more sophisticated and much more subtle, and that is taking some element of thought some element of thought, and elevating it to that position of idolatry. And this happens more uh, over and over again in, um, in everyday life, and we can see this. One of the things that we have to recognize is that in idolatry, to break it down, what always happens is some element, some aspect, or some attribute of the Creator is taken, it's sort of abstractly ripped from out of the essence box and applied to some element of creation. Let's think about this a little bit. We have our usual ten attributes of God that we talk about in terms of the, of the, um, of the creator. And I'm going to add, I'm going to use one that we don't normally talk about, and that is the idea that God is self-existent. Self-existent. This is inherent 
in the name of God in the Old Testament that he was known by as the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew. It's based on what they call the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, it means four letters. The sacred four letters, Y-H-W-H. Remember, in, in Hebrew, there were no vowels. We know from a number of um, uh, endings of names like Zechariah, Hezekiah, that, that, that last syllable, Yah, is the first syllable. So we can add the vowel, Yah, and then it's most likely that the final uh, syllable was pronounced We, or some pronounce it with the V, Yahweh, or Yahweh. And this was the name of God, but it's from the Hebrew... Verb, Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, which is the verb that means to be. It is the verb for existence. So when God says, gave, in Exodus 4, gave Moses his name as Yahweh, he says, what does it mean? It means, I am that I am. I am the self-existing one. There is no cause for God. He is the eternally existent one. So that relates to the attribute of eternality. He is not caused by anything else outside of himself. Now, one of the ways that that is, is uh, taken over in terms of idolatry is in evolution, in Darwinistic thought, nature itself becomes self-existent, uh, or, or, whether, or maybe it's just matter or energy, depending on how it's formulated. But th- think about the Big Bang Theory. You go back to to the Big Bang Theory, and you've got, what what did the universe look like two seconds after the Big Bang? Well, it's beginning to explode. It's beginning to spread out. You've got matter and energy, and all of this is spreading out in the universe. Well, what did it look like six seconds earlier? Well, there was something there. It wasn't that there was nothing there. There was something there. The Bible, as I pointed out last time, clearly teaches that God that, that God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. So in the Big Bang Theory, something is still there. There's still matter and energy there. So you don't have a creation with the Big Bang Theory. You just have a transformation. But what do you still have? You still have matter and energy was still there before the Big Bang, maybe in a different form, but it's still there. So the matter and energy or nature itself is really eternally existent. It's self-existent. So you end up with um, an idolatry of nature. And, of course, that's going to work itself out in any number of different pagan religions. Another example is to take um, take the uh, attribute of God, that God is sovereign, that God rules his creation, that God is the, as the creator, he is the ruler and the final authority in all of creation. Now, this is taken out of context and placed into the created order with something that is that we would call fatalism. And you certainly have fatalism in any number of different uh, religions where there is just this impersonal cause that determines everything. And um, you, you find that, and you go back to Greek mythology, and they, you have all the different gods who create out of, out of themselves and create the universe, and you have the revolt of, of uh, Jupiter or Zeus against uh, uh, his father uh, uh, Saturn or Uranus, depending on whether you're Greek, using the Greek name or the or the uh, Roman or Latin name, and uh, 
Well, what, can, what ultimately determines everything? You have the fates. You have the, the, the three fates, and they're the, they're the ones that determine everything, and it's in, impersonal. So what you've taken is, is something that legitimately belongs to God, ripped it out of context, and applied it to some, something else. You have another attribute of God that we talk about, uh, immutability. And that is that God never changes. God is the same. He, that is the source of all stability and certainty in the universe. The reason that a scientific uh, formula works today just like it did 200 years ago is not because there is stability in the creation, but because God, the God of creation stands behind it. That's why God is able to circumvent those some of those uh, are physical laws, is because he is the God who made them, and that's the basis for, for uh, miracles. But what happens is, in uh, the scientific community, you take a concept like uh, immutability, and you apply that to certain uh, scientific laws so that the laws themselves become the source of certainty and absolutes and stability. Another attribute is justice. God is absolute justice. That means that he is going to make decisions on the basis of his perfect righteousness. So we have the combined concept of his, I'm writing too small there, of his plus R and his justice. Remember, both those concepts that we have in English, righteousness and justice, come out of Hebrew that uses the same word, tzaddik, that, that root word, tzaddik is the root for both the concept of righteousness and justice. In, in Greek, it's the concept of dikaios. Now, g- righteousness is the standard of God's character, his absolutes. Things are right. Here's the point. Things are right not because God fits some standard of right that exists abstractly out here, but because his character is right. Something is right not because it fits some concept of right that sort of hangs out there in some kind of uh, uh, nebulous independence, abstract independence from God, but because that is what God's character is. It is grounded, for, for believers, it's grounded in his righteousness. It's right because he says it's right. And justice is the application of that standard. But what you'll hear with people as well, well, you know, God wouldn't do that because that's not fair. Well, what they've done is they've taken their own standard of whatever right and wrong is, and they've elevated that to this point of supremacy where they've got some sort of abstract concept of fairness up here. And then whatever God does has to fit that abstract concept of fairness. So suddenly what they've done is they've created an idol out of that uh, value system. And another, just a final illustration of how this happens is uh, in, in Scripture we see that God provides salvation, and salvation is based on righteousness and justice. When God imputes His justice, or the, imputes the uh, righteousness of Christ to the believer, His justice approves it. His justice approves it. So, so what that means is that in in uh, there is salvation that is not based on experience, it's not based on emotion, it's based on a legal act that takes place from the courtroom of God. So how is that perverted? It's perverted in terms of an experience or an emotion or some kind of mystical, religious, uh, ritualistic event, and then that becomes uh, becomes an idol 
and is elevated to this position of supremacy. So these are just some ways in which idolatry takes some attribute or act of the Creator that is unique to God and elevates it to some position of absolute. And that's what I was pointing out in the illustration last week of that uh, of the creative visualization technique of um, being quiet, imagining the cloud, and the cloud moves and it changes colors and all of that. This is putting the creature, the individual, in a position of of creating and usurping creative acts of God and being the ultimate source of his uh, of his happiness, stability, and and meaning in life. And so that's just another example. That's how you teach people to think uh, think critically. Now I just didn't develop this. Uh, abstractly either, but it comes right out of the scripture. If you look at, at, at Exodus, uh, <clears throat> at, at, where you have the episode, I don't, I don't want you to turn there, but if you look at Exodus, where you have the episode of the, of the uh, golden calf, where Moses is up on Mount Sinai and God is giving him the, the Ten Commandments, and the people are down in the camp for 40 days and 40 nights, while Moses is up on the mountain and they start getting restless, and they uh, manipulate Aaron to make a golden calf, make an idol for them, and he makes this golden calf, and then what does Aaron say? Aaron says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. See, he is assigning the act of God of deliverance, of redemption, directly to that idol. So that is exactly what idolatry is. It is taking the acts and and, or the character or the attributes of God and assigning them to portions of, of the created order. And this is the same order that we see in Romans chapter 1. And now you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's start at verse 18. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God, that is, the wrath of God is the operation of the justice of God on creatures who violate his absolute standard. Wrath is not a term for emotional anger. Wrath is not a term for emotional anger. Let me just give you a little simple illustration. When you go into court over any matter at all, do you want the the judge to be emotional or do you want him to be calm and objective? You want a judge to be calm and objective. When he throws the book at you and assesses the fullest penalty allowed by law, then the idiom that we use is that we experience the wrath of the court. That does not mean the judge is angry or emotional. It means that he is uh, applying the law to its fullest extent. And that's what wrath means. Don't, it is an anthropo, it's an anthropopathism which takes a human emotion and uses that to illustrate the harshness of divine judgment in a way using what is familiar to man in order to express God's purposes and policy. So the phrase, the wrath of God, has to do with the execution of his judgment on fallen man. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They willingly suppress the truth. This is a volitional act. They suppress the truth. Now, in order to suppress the truth, you have to know the truth. You can't suppress something you don't know. 
You can't suppress something that isn't evident. Now, I'm going to drive this point home because I just want you to lock it away, and we'll eventually talk about this as the days go by. But you have to know something before you can suppress it. To know something, you have to be persuaded that it is true. So you can be persuaded that something is true, know something is true, and then reject it. So that is where volition comes in. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that is mankind. We understand his attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not honor him, uh, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Point is, fallen man knows God exists. It's not an issue. But he may not know it today. I mean, you may go talk to your next-door neighbor who claims God doesn't exist. They're an atheist. Well, they've had 30, 40, 50, 60 years of suppressing. So they've got that truth so suppressed that they it may take, um, they may never... Uh, recognize God's existence again. But the point that I am making is simply this, and that is that there's a clear recognition by the unbeliever of the attributes of God. That's what this passage says. They know the attributes of God. They know what's up here uh, above the circle. And then because they're suppressing the truth and denying that he exists apart from creation, they what do they do in verse 22? Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So they start off knowing that God exists. Then secondly, they reject the this witness of God. Third, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And third, now they're in a position where there are no absolutes and there's no security anymore. There's a God who exists out there who was righteous and holy, and when they're confronted with that kind of a God, it's not very comfortable. So they get rid of this God, but now there's nothing out there, so we have to create something. And so they uh, create uh, idols. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, they say God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't exist. He's out of the picture. What does exist is Baal or Ishtar or some other God that they've created in the shape of an animal or a man or a blend thereof. Or when you get into more sophisticated cultures, this this God, this absolute, is really some sophisticated construct of the mind, whether it's some ethical value, scientific law, or some other factor. It is uh, exchanging for God something else. Nobody is without a God. Everybody has some kind of a God. It may be themselves. It may be some ideal. But they have replaced the God of the Bible with something else. That is the essence of idolatry. Now, what we have to do is to prepare ourselves and to prepare our children to live in the midst of an idolatrous culture. So how do you do that? Well, let's take a look at uh, Isaiah chapter 40. We're just going to do a very rapid run through Isaiah 40 to 49. 
We're going to go jogging this morning through Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through 49 is written in the 8th century B.C. to provide doctrinal information for the northern kingdom that is about to go out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 722 B.C. when they're going to be overrun by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. And also for uh, the Judeans who in the uh, 6th century B.C., 200 years later, will also go out under the fifth cycle of discipline and be taken captive into Babylon. So both groups of people are going to be removed from their culture and placed into an extremely idolatrous culture that is seeking to destroy all evidence of their belief uh, and they're going to seek to brainwash them according to their pagan religious views. And God is going to prepare them for this with the information that's in Isaiah chapter 40 through 49. So I'm not obviously going to cover everything, but there's certainly some things in here that we want to point out. Because this is the way in which God prepares Israel to handle idolatry. So how can you then use that to help you as a parent prepare your kids to handle living in an idolatrous culture? And how can you use it to prepare yourself for living in an idolatrous culture? Well, I want you to notice that the preparation involves, first of all, a solid emphasis on the truth. A solid emphasis on the truth. You don't spend all your time running around just doing analysis of false systems of thinking. You know, that's only nice in terms of illustration to give people a little uh, more clarity and focus on how to make application. You spend your time teaching the truth, teaching doctrine. But I want you to notice that this teaching of the truth is not isolated from contrasting it in a very polemic way with what's being with the false teaching of idolatry. It's very polemic. There's also always through this throughout the teaching of the truth, a contrast with the false teaching of pagan religion. It starts off in about verse 12 with three questions, or actually five questions that God asks, rhetorical questions that are designed to emphasize certain things. It's very similar to the questions that God asked Job. God doesn't expect an answer, but in asking the questions, he's emphasizing his uniqueness, his transcendence, that he is the creator and we are the creation. He is emphasizing his exclusivity. That's a key word. God in the, the God of the Bible is exclusive and unique. In verse 12 he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in, in, a, in a measure? Who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? See, God is saying, who is it among man who has this kind of knowledge? No one. He's emphasizing his uniqueness. It emphasizes these, these two questions that are asked in verse 12. Emphasize the doctrine of creation that he is the creator completely distinct from the creation. In verse 13, you have a third question. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his count, or his, uh, as his counselor has taught him? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught them? Has anybody taught the Lord? Is there anything above God to, who, to which he is answerable? Did, anybody, did he follow somebody else's blueprint? No. He is above everything else. So 
Uh, question number three in verse 13 emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, and emphasizes that everything that he has done has been done according to a plan, but it's a plan that originated with him. Then you have the uh, fourth question that's asked in verse 14, A and B. So this goes through the whole of the verse. It's all one question. Or, excuse me, it looks like it's two questions. You have the first part. Um, the first question is, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? So those first two uh, stanzas, those first two stanzas are, are, make up the first question. And this focuses on justice, that God's justice is above everything else. With whom did he take counsel? Did he seek somebody else's advice? Did somebody else teach him? Who taught him the path of justice? No one did. God himself is the source of what justice is. It is just because he says it is, not because it fits some external pattern or concept of justice. And then the second half of the verse asks another question, and this relates to knowledge or the divine attribute of omniscience. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way? Of understanding, God's knowledge is above man's knowledge. God's knowledge is uh, intuitive. He knows all things from the beginning to the end. He knows everything simultaneously. He knows all the actual things that will take place and all the possible things that could take place. Nobody knows what God knows. He didn't learn from anybody else. His knowledge was not acquired. His not, and he does not acquire knowledge even today. His knowledge is total. So you have these four questions. You have two questions in verse 12 that emphasize the doctrine of creation. You have a third question in verse 13 that emphasizes his sovereignty and omniscience. You have a fourth question, the first half of verse 14, emphasizing his justice. And you have a fifth question in the second half of verse 14, emphasizing his omniscience. Then we get down to verse 16 and and 17. And we read, And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, or it's be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. So verse 17 emphasizes his immensity, which is a subcategory of his omnipresence, that all the nations are nothing compared to God. I mean, you think these nations are something. You think these empires have done something. They're nothing. They're 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 they're. They're inconsequential in compared to God because he is so he is so great. Then in verse 18, the emphasis is on his uniqueness. And this is a theme that is repeated again and again and again throughout these chapters. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? You, there is nothing that compares to God. He is unique. That's why ultimately all of our analogies in teaching anything about God break down. Because there's nothing like God. You can't compare him to anything. Now, we, we try. We try to come up with things. But this relates to the whole doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't understand anything about God. We certainly can understand some things about God. But we will never understand everything about God. Because God is incomprehensible. He is infinite. He is far beyond us. So there's nothing to which we can compare him. Now, all of that emphasizes who God is as the creator, as one who is unique, and it is contrasted with idolatry, starting in verse 19. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Notice the idol is a creation of man in contrast to God who is self-existent and the creator of everything, everything in the universe. 
Verse 20 emphasizes that the idol is made from existing materials, but God is eternally existent. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So the the gods of the of the of the pagans are all generated from already existing material, but God is self-existent and independent of everything else. Furthermore, in verses 21 through 24, uh, Isaiah emphasizes the sovereign power of God who rules over everything, and this emphasizes the creator-creature distinction. And then we come down to verse 25, and again God says, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? So throughout this whole section is this reiteration of the uniqueness of God and that he exists independent of the creation. The promise throughout this section is that God promises future deliverance and future glory for Israel because he is unique. See, throughout this section, God is saying, you're, you're getting ready to just get taken out of your country. You're going to be destroyed as a national entity, but you're, there is a future for you. Now they're saying, well, how can we guarantee a future? See, in the superstitious mindset of the ancient world, if one country got defeated by another country, then one country's gods were better than the other gods. And what God is saying over and over again here is, look, I'm unique, I'm in control of this. Even when you get destroyed as a nation and taken into captivity, I'm still in control, and I am greater than all of these idols and all of these other gods, and no matter what your problem, what your adversity, what your heartache is, I'm still in control, and you can trust me. And ultimately, because I'm in control and I'm the creator, I will bring about security for you and your future deliverance and future glory. So that's a promise for them and one we can apply today. Furthermore, throughout this theme, we see the emphasis that Yahweh is the one who predicts and controls the future. He is the one who predicts and controls the future. And because he is God, he can predict and control the future. And because he can predict and control the future, he can guarantee future deliverance and future glory. And we see this emphasized in chapter 41, verses 21 and following especially in verses 23 and following, where we read, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong... Uh, excuse me, verse 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil. See, this is a challenge to the false gods. Show what's to come, you idol. But they can't do it. And the conclusion, verse 24, Indeed, you are nothing, the idols are nothing, your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So there is this constant polemic against the idols, this constant uh, argument against the idols. So Yahweh is the one who predicts and controls the futures. The idols cannot. The fourth thing that's emphasized throughout this section is that Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth and the one who formed Israel. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one who formed Israel. Therefore, since he formed Israel, he is able to bring about what he promises to Israel. And you can see this in Isaiah 42, verses 4 and 5, uh, Isaiah 43, 15, Isaiah 44, 24 to 25, Isaiah 45, 8 to 13, Isaiah 45:18 and Isaiah 48:12 to 13. Let's just look at Isaiah 42:4, 4, um, 4 and 5. 
or let's say, um, yeah, four and five. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, uh, and this is verse 6, and will hold your hand. I will give you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. So the emphasis on God is the creator of heaven and earth. Also in 43, uh, 43 verse, verse uh, 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. So that theme is emphasized again and again. Verse 5, or, excuse me, point 5. Um, a fifth point that's emphasized throughout this is that man will be ashamed for trusting in idols. But in contrast, those who trust in Yahweh will not be ashamed or disappointed. We see this in Isaiah 42.17 and Isaiah 45.16 in contrast with 49.23. Let's look at these. Isaiah 42.17 states, In relationship to those trusting in idols, they shall be turned back, they shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, You are our gods. Uh, in 45.16 we read, They shall be ashamed and also disgraced all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. And in contrast to this, in Isaiah 49.23, we have a conclusion. Kings shall be your foster fathers. Let me see, 49.23. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Remember, it's earlier at the end of Isaiah chapter 40 that we're told, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So there is shame to those who trust in idols and no shame to those who trust in Yahweh. A sixth point that is made in this section is that no one formed Yahweh, no one formed God, nothing precedes God, and nothing is greater than God. No one formed Him, nothing precedes Him, and nothing is greater than him. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 43, verse 10. At the very end, the last stanza, Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Isaiah 43, 10c. Seventh emphasis in this section is that God is unique. He is exclusive. There is none like Him. Isaiah 44, uh, 6, God says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. In verse 8, He says, Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And Isaiah 45, 5. We read, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. In Isaiah 45.14, we read, and there is no other. There is no other God. In Isaiah 46, verse 5, we read, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In Isaiah 46, um, 
Verse 5 we read, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? God is unique. He is exclusive. There is nothing like him, nothing to compare him to. And then the eighth point that's made in this section is that idolatry is foolishness and that God presents a direct challenge to not only the Babylonian gods but to all other false gods that are erected in human history. Idolatry is foolishness, Isaiah 44, 9 to 17, Isaiah 45, 20, 21, and 22 emphasize the foolishness of idolatry, and God challenges the Babylonian gods to, uh, to, to meet what he has done, Isaiah 47, 1 through 3, uh, and verse 5 and verse 7, Isaiah 47, 1 through 3, and verses 5 and 7. So what do we conclude from this? We conclude from this is any time we seek peace, security, tranquility, any time we seek to manage the problems in our life, any time we seek to manage stress by anything in the creation, anything down here, we are in idolatry. And that idolatry may be overt or it may be a more subtle intellectual form, but any time we put any, put something in the created order, and lean on it as the source of peace, security, and tranquility, we are in idolatry. Kenneth Hamilton wrote a book in the 70s called To Turn From Idols, and in that book he makes a perceptive analysis. He states, Just as polytheism continued in an underground form through the Middle Ages and lives on today in modern cults of witchcraft and Satanism, the imagination of Western man was never fully Christianized. Now, I want you to notice, see, when you took history, they always looked at the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. Those were the Dark Ages. You know why they were the Dark Ages? Because after the Enlightenment, they're called Dark Ages because Christianity played a prominent role. Now, it was Roman Catholic Christianity, and there were problems and theological problems, and we know that. But, see, once they shook off any any impact of, of the Bible in the Enlightenment, the, then, then you now have the age of what? The Enlightenment. See, we were dark when we were listening to the Bible, but now we're enlightened because we have independent, autonomous reason. You see, the very way you were taught history betrays an anti-biblical bias. And what he is pointing out is even though you have a... uh, a Western civilization that has a strong influence from Christianity in it, it's never fully Christianized. The modern idolatrous imagination still refuses to believe that the promises of the living God are sure and that his grace is sufficient for all our needs. Uh, Hamilton goes on to say, it still looks to other powers and other authorities for support and guidance, transferring to them what belongs to God alone. That's what idolatry is. In the modern world, we have different kinds of idolatry, such as Marxism as, uh, and, and, and communism. You have scientific uh, idolatry, such as evolution and Darwinism. Uh, these are things that take elements of the created order and assigns them to God. You can have more um, sophisticated, subtle, and less uh, obviously harmful idolatries where you 
where you elevate a friend, a family, uh, you can uh, elevate a marriage, you can elevate a pastor, you can elevate a business or a career, anything to, the, to an absolute position in life. Whenever you replace God and worship something else in his place, you're into some form of idolatry. Even learning the Bible can, in, can be uh, ripped uh, out, out of its natural context and correct context and become a form of idolatry. So how do you handle living in an idolatrous culture? Well, first of all, as I pointed out, you inculcate the truth, who and what God is in terms of his attributes and his sufficiency and his power and his grace. And uh, let's get an example of it, because there was a generation that was prepared by the doctrine of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and that was the generation of Daniel and his friends. And we did a detailed study of this uh, when we began our study of Daniel a couple of years ago. But turn over to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Because here you have a situation where you have these extremely orthodox young men who are 14 years of age who are taken captive out of their their um, uh, cocoon of of uh, of Judaism where they uh, not Ju- not Judaism but of of uh, Old Testament Old Testament truth and the worship of Yahweh where they're taught doctrine by their parents and now they're taken into Babylon where they are going to be put in this training process where they're going to be inculcated with pure paganism and brainwashed with all the skills the Babylonians could muster. How did they handle that? Did they challenge their teachers? Did they sit there in class and say, well, you know, I don't agree with that because, you know, my, my parents taught me that Ten Commandments, and I know that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, delivered us from uh, from Egypt. Did they do that? No, they did not. In fact, that's the lesson to learn. Uh, somebody raised a point, said, "Well, after after last week, um, you know, you think there are going to be some parents who may uh, try to try to go down and and uh, you know challenge." the local schools. Well, there are correct ways to challenge and there are incorrect ways to challenge. You don't go on a one-man crusade. There are correct ways to go through procedures and to challenge, and that's what we find with with, uh, with Daniel and with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There were many things that they were taught. They were taught all about the entire religious pantheon of, of the Babylonians, but they don't challenge that. When they make a challenge, it's over diet. There's not a challenge until you have you have the, the instructors telling them, enforcing a dietary regimen on them that is in direct violation of the written word of God. See, a lot of people say, "Well, I don't want to pay. I don't want to pay this tax, or or I don't want to. I don't want to get involved in in this particular situation because." I'm, you know, that just violates the whole principle of human responsibility. Well, that's true. There's a, there's a principle of human responsibility, and it's a divine institution, and that's important. But see, you're arguing from principle. I mean, not once do you see them argue from principle. What they do is they argue only when God's Word says, you shall not do this, or you shall only do that. And the Babylonian instructors come in and tell them to mandate that they do just the opposite of what God specifically told them to do. Now, what what you need to pay attention to is how Daniel handles it. How Daniel handles it. In verse 8, we read, But Daniel purposed in his heart 
that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And, and the impression here is that he doesn't challenge him in front of everybody, which immediately creates an ego situation and uh, a challenge to authority, but he has a personal conversation with him outside of class. And he's going to appeal to him, but notice the appeal is, he doesn't say, well look, I'm a Jew, and the Mosaic Law says I can't eat this stuff, so uh, let, let's try to find a better diet for us. See, if he did that, he would be appealing to a standard that the eunuch, the chief steward, does not recognize. Chief steward says, I don't care what Mosaic Law says, get back in there. See, you, every now and then you find parents who will come in and those, they'll, 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 their kids are being taught evolution in the classroom. And the kid says, you know, I don't want to learn this stuff. I'm a Christian. I don't believe in it. And parents come down and they challenge the teacher. And they say, listen, we're Christians, so don't do that. See, what they've done is they've appealed to a standard that the school teacher doesn't recognize. And the school system doesn't recognize. And what they do is they create this, this battleground that they're going to lose. Because remember, they're operating in, in the cosmic system. Daniel doesn't do that. He exercises wisdom. He comes in and he says, look, um, uh, he says um, in verse, uh, verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants." See, see, the steward isn't going to say, okay, you guys, you guys operate on, on your Jewish diet. Uh, I mean, he, he won't allow that because he's afraid that if he does that, then these guys are going to, they're not going to be as strong, they're not going to be as sharp, and he's going to get in trouble. So what Daniel's going to do is let's propose a little test. See, your standard is you want us to still be strong and active and, uh, and healthy. So let's appeal to your standard of truth, and we're not going to appeal to the Mosaic Law. We're not going to come in and say, you know, I'm not going to eat this food because I'm, uh, I'm following the Mosaic Law. We're going to appeal to your standard. Now, here's your standard. Your standard is you want us to be healthy and strong. Let's give a 10-day test, and at the end of 10 days, we'll follow our diet. Your, people, your guys follow your diet, and we'll be healthier and stronger than they are. Now, how does that relate? Well, you go into a classroom, let's say, or you take a teacher aside, or if you can, or maybe you need to work through some other systems or organizations, and I'm not advocating that you do this, but we used the example last week of you have these kinds of stress management things. You go in and you say, okay, you really take a stand that you don't want to, you don't want to teach religion in the classroom. Well, let me show you that you're teaching religion in the classroom. And that's what this is. What you just taught in this creative visualization exercise is religion in the classroom. Now, you're trying not to teach religion in the classroom, so don't you think this is a bad idea to teach religion in the classroom? You know, appeal to their standard, which is that there needs to be this this uh, separation of church and state, and you shouldn't be teaching religious thinking in the classroom. And use that as your fulcrum. Don't come in there and go, I'm a, I believe in the Bible and this is idolatry. You know, you have to be, Scripture says, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, I'm not, as I said, I'm not advocating to go pick that battle. You can't fight every battle. Some people are particularly skilled 
and particularly prepared in life to fight certain battles for us. And they're out there fighting curriculum battles, and they're out there going to school boards, and there's different organizations. You have organizations down in, I know of one down in Texas that does an incredible job watching over textbooks because there's so many people in the state of Texas and so many people in the state of California that if books are adopted as textbooks in those two states, yeah, pretty much those are the textbooks that are going to go everywhere else because that's where the money is. And so they do a tremendous job, but they do it very wisely, and they do it with a, a tremendous amount of skill and research and organization, and that's how it has to be done. It's Very little is gained usually by one parent just going in and, and making a case to one particular teacher because that teacher is just doing what their authority is telling them to do. You've got to work through PTA organizations and other things. So you have to pick your battles, and you can't win them all, and your biggest battle is just to make sure your children understand the difference so that they're not taken in by these systems of thought. You also have to teach your children how to handle a challenge like that in the classroom. So your kid doesn't do something stupid and go, well, I'm not, I don't believe that. You know, you can't teach that because I'm a Christian. Teach your kid to operate on grace. It's the same thing I teach some of these uh, young guys who go to seminary. You're going to be in the classroom. You're going to have a professor who's going to teach things that you don't agree with. Don't challenge his authority. Regurgitate on a test what the professor wants. I mean, that's what my mother taught me back in the fifth grade when I started being introduced to evolution is you don't have to believe it. You don't, if you put it on a test, answer a test question with that information doesn't mean you've bought into it. Just give the teacher what they want and don't challenge their authority. They are the authority. They have a curriculum they're supposed to teach. Deal with it in grace and humility. So you have to pick your battles. You have to always operate on grace and humility. Always support the authority of the teacher. Even when that teacher is wrong, you as a parent have a responsibility to back the authority of the teacher because they're the teacher. Don't run down the teacher at home. Because what you're doing then is you're teaching your children to run down authority. And you're going to create, and if, and if your children are in elementary school and you start to teach them to run down authority then, you're going to reap your own rewards when they hit adolescence. Another point, don't make an issue out of Christianity because the unbeliever doesn't recognize that standard. Make the issue a standard that they believe in and that they're violent. Uh, that they're violating. Always remember to be wise, to be cautious, and to be gracious, and don't be antagonistic, and don't create uh, secondary issues that are not essential. We live in an age when idolatry, false religions dominate, whether it's a an idolatry of science, whether it's an idolatry uh, of New Age Beliefs and idolatry of humanism, whatever it is, we're surrounded by all kinds of pagan systems. And it's our responsibility to be able to take, to, to eliminate the idolatries that we've picked up over the years and to teach our children to identify and eliminate those in their lives. But it is not our job to go out and eliminate idolatry in the pagan uh, cosmic system organizations that are under Satan's sway. That will never win that battle, and you have to uh, operate in the arena where you can achieve 
success, and it's one of the greatest signs of maturity, is to know where you can win your battles and fight those battles and be willing to let slide the battles that you won't win and will just waste energy and distract you from the truth. And then the last point I want to make, and that is that there are some of you and there are some people listening who, as they listen to last week and listen to this, they're going to come to a realization in their life that they're involved in a career where they're having to promote idolatry. I've been there, I think, a lot of different people. You may be working for a business where you're teaching some kind of motivational strategy, and you may realize the whole thing is built on idolatry. And now you're in a moral quandary and a spiritual quandary. And you've got to decide where you're going to compromise and where you're not going to compromise. And over the years, when I was younger, I definitely made decisions about careers where I said, I can't function and operate in this arena because ultimately it's a compromise of my core values. I can't be in a position where I'm teaching something that is uh, contradictory to what uh, my ultimate view of reality. Now, there are ways around that sometimes. In some systems, you may be in the military, and you may have to teach some sort of system, and you can say, well, you know, this is what I'm supposed to teach, and this is what you're supposed to l- listen to, but I think it's garbage, and most of you will too, but let's just go through, the, through it because we have to. You know, there are times you can get away with that, but there are times you can't, and when you can't, you have to make decisions about uh, where you're going to invest Invest your life and where you're going to draw the line of compromise in terms of your own thinking. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to understand that there are clear absolutes in your word and that you are uh, unique from everything else. You are exclusive. You are the creator God who formed everything in, in, in the universe. Father, we recognize that we live in a culture that is dominated by all manner of human viewpoint thinking, uh, ideas of all types of uh, false religions and philosophies, and that this is a tremendous uh, arena of competition for our thoughts. And one of the ways that Satan uh, attempts to uh, blind our thinking is through all of these uh, false systems of thought. pray that you would give us the objectivity, the wisdom, the perspicacity from your word that we need in order to identify these Uh, areas of thinking in our own sphere of life and that we would have uh, the courage to know how to handle it and the the wisdom to know how to handle it and the courage to carry through with our convictions. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would recognize that it's not based on who they are, what they've done. Uh, It's not based on ritual. It's not based on uh, any kind of moral system, but that, that eternal destiny is dependent upon accepting a free gift of salvation, a free gift that was paid for in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never uh, trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to, to uh, determine your eternal destiny. All you have to decide is, is what you're trusting in. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you will have eternal life. Father, we thank you for what we have learned today. We pray that we would be challenged by it and be able to apply it consistently. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.